Thank you, Paul. I thought you'd done that before. Right? He's done it before. He's just getting old. Is he gone yet? Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> These messages from Jesus to the seven churches, they tend to meddle, don't they? They meddle with our lives get a little uncomfortable. This morning we come to the city of Thyatira. We're heading back down south. We've gone up north and we've made the curve of about 30, 35, 40 miles south and east of Pergamum, where we were last Sunday morning. Thyatira is not exactly a vacation spot. You wouldn't go there on your honeymoon. If you went there at all, you're just kind of passing through. It's in this valley. It's defeated a lot. There's no Acropolis. There's no high place. And of the seven cities of Revelation, Thyatira is the least important. And that's sort of where we need to begin this morning. It is the smallest and least important of these seven cities. It was known for its high-quality bronze. Now, they would produce weapons and make armaments, and when they were polished, they would look like gold. It was known for producing cloth dyed with purple or red from, from the, the local uh, area. Acts 16, verse 14, tells of, of Paul running into uh, or meeting uh, Lydia in Philippi, who was from Thyatira, and she was selling purple, the dyes from Thyatira. So economically, the town is dominated by, by various trade guilds. They mixed their trade, their skills, with, with pagan worship, with immorality. This is a union town. I don't know, Flint, Michigan, you know, whatever. But along with the regular trade guild business came this idol worship and drunkenness and, and sexual perversion. It was just one big package. You couldn't really say, well, I want to join the guild, but I'm going to skip all this other stuff. I'm not going to partake in the meal of, of the idolatrous meal. It's like, it didn't work that way. It wouldn't fly in Thyatira. It is perhaps ironic that the smallest, least important of the cities gets the longest letter that Jesus writes. Small churches, they actually matter to Jesus. His eyes, they're, they're gazing on, on the tribal church that this morning in, in Papua New Guinea and the church meeting behind closed doors in North Korea. Don't ever think my church is too small. There are no small churches to the Savior. And though big churches get most of the publicity, most of the believers in America and actually around the world attend churches under 100 people. And God's at work in those places. And God loves the small churches as much as He loves the big ones. So let's walk through this longest of the seven letters. We're going to walk through it verse by verse, and we're going to discover very simply there are six points that Jesus makes as He writes this letter to this church. Point number one is this. Jesus knows the truth about the church. He knows what's going on there. The message begins, as they all do, with a description of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, of, uh, we're in Revelation chapter 2, by the way. 
Verse 18 says this, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This, kind of unbelievably, is the only place in the entire book of Revelation where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. This is it. It's a title way too exclusive for our pluralistic society. It's the equivalent of a Messiah. It's probably a reference back to Psalm 2. As Jesus, the superhuman personality, commissioned by God for His role as Messiah and King, it speaks of His deity. To say Jesus is the Son of God means that when we worship Him, we are worshiping God Himself. It's probably no coincidence that the guardian deity of of Thyatira is Apollo. Apollo is the son of Zeus. And to begin this letter calling Jesus the son of God, I think is significant because it reminds those believers there that there is only one son of God. And it ain't Apollo, it's Jesus. He is described with eyes blazing like fire. He can see everything and see through everything. They penetrate, and he overlooks nothing. His feet are like burnished bronze. They come in judgment over all those who oppose him. In this city known for its guilds and a lot of bronze making, you have Jesus with his feet clothed in bronze. And guess what bronze does when it steps on stuff? It crushes it. And this verse tells us that we better pay attention because his eyes can see everything and his feet are, 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 are burnished bronze. It's like the pilot as he tells the passengers, buckle up, we're about to hear some turbulence, hit some turbulence. You better listen. So here. Second thing he does, Jesus praised the good in the church. As is his pattern, we get the good news first. And in many ways, Thyatira is almost one of the best churches that we will encounter of the seven. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. This church, it has the good works of Ephesus, and it has the love of Ephesus, the the love that Ephesus lacked. The church has the perseverance of Smyrna and and the good theology of most of the church in Pergamum. And Jesus even says, you are doing more now than you were at the beginning. Now, this doesn't mean the church was a very busy church. He's not commending churches with, with calendars packed with activities. I think he means the congregation itself was growing in faith. They were growing in in the ways that they loved one another, and they were growing in hope. To Ephesus, Jesus has said, you were strong, but you're getting weaker. To, To Thyatira, he says, you're good, and guess what? You're getting better. That's great encouragement. That's very high praise from the lips of the Savior. But whatever else we can say about Thyatira, they were making progress spiritually. It's a a wonderful church with a wonderful legacy. It was built on the foundation of love and growing in that. And when things got tough and they felt like quitting, they persevered. They kept going forward. There is, however, something missing in Thyatira. 
And it's this high praise that really makes the rest of this letter kind of like, ooh, it's troubling. Because somehow in the midst of their growth, they had allowed an ungodly woman to rise to a place of enormous spiritual influence in the church. Point number three, Jesus exposes the evil in the church. What did the church allow into its midst? The simple answer is moral compromise. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, let's be honest, this text is a little murky and we have often more questions than we'll be able to, to discover an answer, but we'll give it a shot. Who is this woman? Well, Jesus clearly refers to her as an actual woman in the church. Even though her name is Jezebel, that's, that's probably not a real name. I mean, who names their kids Jezebel? All right? Maybe it is, though. But it seems to be an allusion to the wicked wife of King Ahab back in, second, in 1 Kings 16. The short version of that story goes like this. Jezebel was the daughter of a pagan king called, and, and called Ethbaal. She married Ahab, the king of Israel, and when she married him, she exerted such an influence of evil, she brought her gods and her evil worship with her into Israel so that he became known as the most evil king up until that point that, that Israel had ever seen. And even though the spiritual tone of the nation was not good to start with, under her influence, it became horrible. And, and Ahab just led, a, it was terrible. And this crafty Jezebel becomes known really as, as the seductive form of evil that not only allowed idolatry to come into Israel, but it promoted it. It was a religion which not only allowed adultery, but it encouraged it, it rewarded it. That's a toxic mix. It will destroy a nation and it will destroy a church. But how could such a woman come to power in this church of Thyatira? They're such a great church. How does this happen? I think the answer is in the word prophet, or some translations will say prophetess. She claimed to speak from God. She gained credibility with, with gullible, untaught believers. One could imagine that such a woman, she combined a powerful personality with some persuasive speech and a seductive smile and scorn for her critics. She was no doubt very clever, very witty, slick when she talked, and extremely dangerous. Because with Jezebel, you see, you could have it all. You can have salvation. You can have Jesus. You can have heaven. You can have friendship with the world. You can have guilt-free sex. There you go. You can have it all. And you get to do it all under the guise of being a really good Christian. No doubt, people flocked. They probably loved her and filled the chairs at, at Thyatira. Some of them probably doubted the teachers, the Bible, biblically-based teachers at Thyatira, and their narrow-minded fundamentalist killjoys. 
I mean, it worked for the Jezebel of the Old Testament. Why wouldn't it have worked for the Jezebel of the New Testament? Beware of those who advertise themselves as prophets. It's one thing to say, well, this is what Romans 8 says. It's quite another thing to say, you know, I had this dream and God spoke to me and said this. Those are two very different things. Watch out. There's another question that comes up. How could such a woman be tolerated in such a great church? How did they let this happen? There's a lot of speculation about this. I mean, maybe she was related to the one of the church leaders, you know, and they just didn't dare confront her, gave her some cover. Maybe the leaders were afraid that if they confronted her, she's going to split the church. We're going to be half of what we were. Maybe they hoped that if they just tolerate her long enough, she'll just go away. Maybe they thought that it was a mark of grace to just accept her, hoping she'll repent, come on, and we'll be full of grace. Now, it was probably some combination of all of those factors. But whatever is the reason, this church did not deal with her, and to not deal with her was sin. And it's frightening to consider this sort of thing. It can overthrow a strong congregation. There's a lot of well-meaning people in the world who they want to go to St. Jezebel's church of what's happening now because it's so much fun. That's a church when you, where you can believe what you want and do what you want. He exposes the evil. Number four, Jesus judges the evil in the church. This gets interesting. Verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. When Jesus says, I've given her time to repent, it seems to mean that the church leaders, they actually have confronted her. They've said, this is your sin, you need to stop it. And she wouldn't respond. And while it's true that the patience of God lasts a long time, and it's meant to lead us to repentance, God's patience does have its limits. He's not going to wait forever. If we persist in sin, judgment will come. The one piece of good news here is that her followers, they still have time to repent. She seems to be kind of beyond that, but they're not. The bell that tolls for her, it will toll for them unless they repent. But don't miss this. You cannot continue in sexual sin forever or idolatry without facing the judgment of God. And what is that judgment? It's spelled out right here. Verse 22, number first, there will be a bed of suffering. She's going to suffer. Then verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. There's a bed of suffering. Her, her followers will die. I will strike her children dead. Try to water that down. Three, all churches will know that God is serious about sin in the church. Then all the churches will know, I'm the one who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Are these words harsh? Yes, they are harsh. 
but they're Jesus' words. And this text, it doesn't spell out specific sins, does it? So, I'm not going to either for a big sigh of relief. But I will say this. The question is, is, what am I doing with my body that acts like the body belongs to me and not to the Lord? What am I doing with my body that acts like the body belongs to me and not to the Lord? Change body with anything. What are you doing in your marriage that acts like my marriage belongs to me and not to the Lord? Put in your business. Put in your mind. Put in what you eat. See, we believers get hung up on judging the world. And we wink at sin and we overlook it within the church. We can be known for what we're against and not what we're for. But we ought to be known for what we're for, holiness. For example, if we have let our sexual standard be heterosexuality, we do not understand the Bible. The biblical standard is holiness in the church among the followers of Jesus Christ. I was blown away years ago when I read this paragraph in Christopher Yuan's book. He said a mom came to him in tears because she had a son who had just announced that he was gay and was moving into it with his boyfriend. She was so upset she hadn't even told his father yet. And she's there in tears and crushed. And she wondered why her son couldn't be like her other son, normal, with a steady girlfriend and a baby on the way. But some of you would be relieved in that situation too, let's be honest. You'd much rather have a kid living with a girl than living with a boy. But you see, the biblical standard is holiness. Yeah, homosexuality is sinful. But that doesn't mean that heterosexuality in all of its forms is blessed by God. What's the biblical standard for sexuality? It's not heterosexuality. It's holiness. What am I doing with my body that acts like the body belongs to me and not to the Savior? Think about this. Godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We should stop emphasizing one and not the other. Both are good. Holy sexuality, chastity in singles, faithfulness in marriage, is God's good standard for everyone. So what are you doing with your body that acts like the body belongs to yourself and not to the Lord? Because God will judge the evil in the church. Number five, <clears throat> Jesus encourages his faithful followers Verse 24, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. 
It's murky all over the place in this text, isn't it? Satan's secret things, really? I think it gives us a clue as to what's really going on in Thyatira. Jezebel had enticed her followers. She promised them hidden knowledge. She promised them the experience came through some combination of, of pagan rituals at the guilds plus Christian symbolism plus sexual experimentation. Just mix it all together. And it's all under the banner of learning deep secrets that other people don't want to know. Your pastor's not telling you the deep stuff. Let me come with me, I'll tell you. False prophets love deep secrets. It's almost irresistible because we love it with, you know, let me tell you a secret. You want to know what's really going on? Oh, we soak it up. And when you cloak the deep secrets with a veneer of religiosity, it becomes even more attractive. I mean, why be stuck with just the Bible? When you can enter a world of direct messages and omens and signs and prophecies that give you insight into the hidden mysteries that and it's a regular Christian doesn't have. It is very interesting that here Jesus doesn't tell the church to cast this woman out of the church. That's what I would probably say to do. Evidently, she is so deeply embedded into the life of this church that Jesus is going to take care of this personally, himself. Presumably, it means that it's some sort, of, some sort of, of physical judgment leading to her death and the death of her followers is on its way. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Remember, we celebrated, just celebrated the Lord's table. Those who got drunk at the Lord's table, God judged them. Some of you now sleep. So to those who remain faithful to Jesus, he really just says two words, hold on. Don't give in to her seductive schemes. Hold on. Don't join those who follow her teachings. Hold on. See, sometimes godliness is measured by simply holding on when it's easier to give up. Just hold on. Number six. See, we have numbers. We got rid of the letters, right? <laughs> numbers are a lot easier to deal with. <clears throat> Number six. Jesus promises to share his victory with us. Here's the promise Jesus makes to those who hold on in Thyatira. Before I read it, I want you to remember that these rewards that he's going to mention are not offered to those of the church within the church who followed Jezebel. These aren't their rewards. Those folks get what? Suffering. That's it. But if you hold on, you'll receive this promised reward. Verse 26. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. Note the connection between those two expressions. The one who is victorious and holds... And, and does my will to the end. These are victors, all right? The connection shows that these, these that victors here in these seven messages, they're believers, it comes in each, in each of these letters, who are obedient to Christ all the way to the end of their lives. In verse 25, God commands them, hold on to what you have until I come. 
Then here he adds to that promise and he says, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, you hold on to the end, I will give authority over the nations. The followers of the false teacher in Thyatira, they're not victors, but they are called my servants in verse 20. They're believers, but they've been deceived and we're losing out on these rewards promised to anyone that does my will to the end. To me, the text seems rather clear. Some people that are born again will be rewarded. And other people who are born again will be deceived and sin and suffer. They will suffer discipline from the hand of their Savior with no reward. Then Jesus quotes from Psalm 2, verse 27. That one will rule them with an on... It, I'm cutting in, coming to it in the middle of it, and it doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to go to the actual Bible instead of my notes. Well, it does say what my notes say. Let us start in verse 26, which is really what I was trying to say. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one rule... That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. Okay, you read in Psalm 2, like verse 7 and 8, that, that the Son is invited by the Father and, and everything is given from the Father to the Son. That's what I'm trying to say. But here we read what? We read that we've been invited and the Son gives us what the Father has given to the, to the Son. So it's coming from the Father to the Son, and then we are invited to join in that inheritance, in that rule. Because when he says, just as I have received authority from my Father, he's extending the promise of the Father in Psalm 2 to believers, to us, followers who hold on. It's the promise of ruling authority for obedient believers. It's taught other places, Luke 19. Some, some believers who are faithful, what? Some get five cities, some get ten cities. They're given authority. Those who remain faithful will one day reign with Christ on earth. They will share with him in his kingdom that will spread all over the planet. 2,000 years ago, the world crucified the Savior, but there is a day coming when he will rule with an iron fist over the entire planet. He will rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. And if we are faithful, we will share in that victory. And then he says in verse 28, I will also give that one the morning star. Oh, my word, more murk. There's all kinds of speculation about what the morning star is. Some say the easy version is Jesus. I mean, he is the star, you know, rising up. It's kind of a strange way to say, though, I'm giving you me, but, you know, because it looks like they're very two different things. I, Jesus is giving you this morning star. It seems to be a distinction between the gift and the giver in this text. But one explanation that intrigued me was that the morning star is a promise that in the messianic kingdom, the righteous will shine as stars. Because the morning star is what? It's the brightest, it's thought to be at least, the brightest star in the morning. And it will follow the conquest of the Messiah over his enemies. 
Similar to what Matthew says in Matthew 13, 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Kind of the same concept. And the idea of the morning star then reinforces the, the idea of the reward. It presents a more symbolic form of the role of overcomer as ruling with the Messiah, putting down his enemies at the second coming. And, and you're a morning star, you're a bright star in the sky. And then he ends with the familiar command, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's the text. And the question now we have to ask is, what's the implication of this letter to us in the 21st century? I mean, no one doubts that we live in a sex-saturated society, right? We glorify sex so much. We talk about it so much. It almost bores us. But rampant sex is only a symptom of a much deeper problem. We're starving on the inside. And if we're starving on the inside, we're going to eat whatever is put in the plate in front of us, even if it kills us. Why is pornography such a huge business on the internet? It's supply and demand. People make millions off of it because it offers a temporary fix to cover up the inner emptiness in a man. God's way is holy sexuality. It is the best way. Do we really believe that? Let me offer an illustration. When you think about an orchestra, can you imagine a musician saying this? You're not going to tie me down my whole life to playing the violin. Not going to happen. I've got to play the tuba on some nights. I need a clarinet on another night. Or the oboe, you know, and I'm going to work in my trombone every once in a while. Please, can I do that? Well, this is the guarantee. You'll never be a virtuoso if you do that. You'll never be the best violinist in the world if that's what, if that's what you're going to do. You'll always be what? Mediocre. Until you give yourself to one instrument totally and completely, to one and only for the rest of your life. And though many have tried, no one has ever improved on God's plan for sexual happiness. One man, one woman, faithful to each other for a lifetime. And there's always a Jezebel out there, ready to talk to us, ready to listen to our problems, offer some quick, satisfying solution. She can quote scripture while she's sleeping with you. Beware of Jezebel. She has a lot of modern sons and daughters. She'll take your body and your soul and lead them away from God. There is no such thing as casual sex. There is no such thing as a guilt-free one-night stand. God has wired us so that we will find our deepest sexual fulfillment inside the boundary of marriage between a man and a woman. It starts not with a physical act, but it begins with a relationship that leads to a commitment that makes a covenant before God that creates a marriage bed that God will delight in. And we ought to teach our children that when God created sexual desire, He also created the proper place for it to be explored and enjoyed because God takes sexual sin very seriously. He judges those who practice it. He judges those who promote it. He judges those who tolerate it or laugh at it or make light of it. Now, this sort of message is not very popular. You uncomfortable yet? But let us keep the lines sharp and clear 
between the church and the world. We're not in charge of the world. We are in charge of the church. The church's job is to shine the pure light of the truth of God in the midst of the prevailing darkness. And if a church lives like the world, why would the world ever want to be part of it? And any doctrine that makes it easy to sin, any doctrine that redefines sin, any doctrine that makes it less sinful does not come from our holy God. So what do you say to those who've made a mistake, for those who have sinned? Is there grace for them? Well, could Jezebel have been saved? Could such an evil woman have found forgiveness? Well, we aren't actually left to wonder about that. Jesus said in verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. She'd rather her perverted vision of of section idolatry to doing the hard work of repentance that was required by the Savior. She had her chance, but she was unwilling. But you know what? In that statement, we find the hope of the gospel. If you're willing, you can be changed. If you're willing, you can be made clean. If you're willing, you can have a new start. If you're willing, you can be washed all of your sin away. Because we're all saved by the same way, the free grace of God. And to those who are scarred by wrong choices in the past, if you're willing, you can be forgiven, you can be clean. But listen and hear me clearly. The cross of Jesus Christ blows away any argument you may have with yourself as to whether your sin is really all that bad. It is. And then there's this. Sexual sins are listed right next to relational sins in the lists of the New Testament. It's right there with gossip, slander, anger, Therefore, we all have to come to the same place. We all have to come to find hope and forgiveness at the cross. You may still have to live with the consequences of your past, but you can have the guilt and the burden of that past lifted. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has gone. The new has come. Think of it this way. You can have Jezebel or you can have Jesus. You cannot have them both. So what do you want? You can have the cheap thrills the world offers and feel sick to your stomach the next morning. Or you can have Jesus now, a new life now, forgiveness now, and one day rise as the morning star. Because what Jesus did, we cannot do. What Jesus accomplished, we cannot achieve. What Jesus gives, we cannot earn. We're saved by grace and grace alone. And so if we give to him all that we are, including the sins of our past, and we trust him as Savior, he loves you. He came from heaven to deliver us. The question is, will you come to him? A new life awaits those who would say yes, but you will never know it until you come. One final word of exhortation. 
Many voices in the world and the church at large insist that we're Christians. We're kind of on the wrong side of history and out of touch with the ever-changing beliefs in our culture. Get on board and adapt, they say, or be left behind in the wake of a culture that's increasingly hostile to Christ. Your beliefs are ancient. They're based on the Bible, and they will only serve to alienate you from the society in which you live. To this, I would echo to Peninsula the words of Jesus to the church at Thyatira. Hold on to what you have until I come. Hold fast, Peninsula. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the, what the, what the Spirit says to Peninsula Community Church. Let's pray. Father, one of the most difficult challenges we face as a church family is to promote holiness, but not let that be misunderstood that, that we don't like people who are sinning. May our love for people and our love for the holiness of God merge together, that we will be a place of grace and hope. Because there are people among us even who need to experience your grace today without judgment, but we all come to the same cross to the same place of forgiveness with the same depth of sin. Let us hear you and what your Spirit says to our church. In Jesus' name, amen.